Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by Tucker Milling. Join Andy Schneider, national spokesperson for the USDA APHIS Avian Health Program, editor-in-chief of Chicken Whisperer magazine, and author of The Chicken Whisperer's Guide to Keeping Chickens, Chicken Factor Chicken Poop, and Zero Waste Chicken Keeping, as he welcomes top poultry veterinarians, poultry scientists, and poultry nutritionists to discuss the hot topics in the poultry world today and provide science-based, fact-based, study-based information to help you raise the healthiest poultry possible. And now, here's your host, Andy Schneider. All righty, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, sorry about the dead air time earlier. It normally, uh, Blog Talk Radio will automatically play at the beginning the uh, CW theme song, but it did not, so I'm not sure why I'll have to go and troubleshoot that. After 12 years, this might be the very first time it hasn't played that theme song, so if you're like, wait a minute, this is completely different, uh, then here, let me jog your memory for a minute. After 12 years of doing the show, this is our 12th year of broadcasting the show, uh, it's almost weird not to start off with that, so it threw me for a loop. I'm like, okay, are you going to play? Are you going to play? Um, thank you very much for tuning in today. We, we have a great show lined up for you today. Um, we are addressing the common questions or some common questions found on chicken forums, and when I say we – uh, our, our awesome guest today, a regular guest for many, many years, contributor to Chicken Whisperer magazine, contributor to the book uh, Chicken Fact or Chicken Poop. Of course, it's poultry veterinarian Dr. Maurice Pateski out at UC Davis. He's not only a poultry veterinarian but a, a um, uh, epidemiologist as well, uh, so he knows how all these these viruses and things work and, and how we to what we need to do to prevent them and whatnot. So thank you very much for tuning in today. It's been a little while since the last podcast. I do apologize. Obviously, there's lots of things that have been going on. We're going to get back here in the routine. I already have next week's show scheduled. Um, after 12 years, we try to do this show every single Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And we have guests like poultry veterinarian Dr. Pateski, poultry scientist Dr. McRae, and other uh, poultry experts from around the country to come on and, and talk about topics. A lot of times they are current events. Like, for example, let me get over here, and I'm sure, uh, without a doubt, uh, 99% sure that Dr. Pateski has heard about 
this announcement, which I'll make, which is not good news at all, and that is that the uh, USDA FIS has confirmed uh, high path avian influenza in a turkey flock, and I believe that was in North Carolina. Um, it's uh, the H7N3 avian influenza, and they believe it's in a turkey flock, and they believe it mutated um, from low path. And we've talked about that on the show before, how that, that can happen. Um, and uh, but, but, yeah, I posted a link to that story. You can read it over on the Chicken Whisperer page. So we talk about those things as well, plus the uh, ongoing uh, Newcastle disease outbreak out in California. It, rumors are going around that they're hoping to lift the ban out there in those particular areas this spring. So we hope that uh, people are, are – um, <laughs> abiding by the, the, the rules and the quarantine and things like that for birds. So there's not another case. There's not another positive case to reopen the investigation, which then would make the quarantine last even longer. And they're really hoping, uh, I guess, negative, negative in a way that the uh, negative, negative, positive, <laughs> that um, the coronavirus issue out there in California with everybody being on lockdown may uh, help contribute to people not moving birds and doing what they need to do um, to try to nip that in in the bud. So that that's interesting that's going on out there in California. So we hope this high path uh, in North Carolina, that they can nip that in the bud and it doesn't spread anywhere and they've contained it to that one farm and maybe even that one house uh, uh, of the turkeys. And uh, we'll, we'll try to keep you up to date to that as more news comes out of North Carolina on that high path. We surely don't need that again. I think the last time it was, this is the first time it's been uh, found since 2017, if memory serves. Um, so we surely hope they can nip that in the bud and uh and and get rid of that so i think what i'm going to do is uh, while everybody if you're a new listener welcome uh while um while i go to my first short commercial break if you want to get a pen and paper you can jot down these notes so i have to give you a minute to get prepared and when we come back i will welcome uh poultry veterinarian dr maurice Pateski, and we'll be talking uh, about i've got several questions i think seven that i actually sent him uh but we can we can um we can add to that and i may even consider open up the phone lines towards the end of the show, possibly. We do have thousands of people that listen to the show. We have hundreds that listen to the live show. But I've been doing this show a long time, 12 years, and, and sometimes for whatever reason, it's hard to reel in somebody to call in live on a, on a live show. Uh, they, they, they have no problems emailing or messaging or things like that. Even when we did a Zoom or, or yesterday uh, with a bunch of folks on a, a Poultry 101 class, and they could just type in via message or uh, their questions. It was pretty limited, but I, I may try to open up the phone lines. We haven't done that in so long. We've got 50 phone lines available that are open. We may try to open up the uh, phone lines here for people had a question or other things that they see out there on the chicken blogs and forums that, that raise an eyebrow and say, you know, let's let's talk about this and, and get the right information out there. So I think I'm going to head over to a commercial break, and we'll be back uh, very shortly. Get that pen and paper out so you can take lots of notes, and uh, we'll be back right after this short break. Since 1921, Stromberg's has been a family-owned and operated business providing quality poultry and poultry supplies to their customers. Today, the Stromberg's family offers over 200 different breeds of poultry, including chickens, waterfowl, and game birds. They also offer poultry supplies for both the beginner and experienced poultry keeper. Stromberg should be on the top of your list when it's time to order your new day-old baby chicks and poultry supplies. 
Order online today at StrombergsChickens.com. That's StrombergsChickens.com. When you need an incubator, think Brincy, the incubation specialists. Brincy has been a world-leading manufacturer of quality incubators for almost 40 years. They manufacture incubators that hold anywhere from 7 to 380 eggs with high-quality electronic and digital controls, including precise humidity controls and programmable egg turning, all at surprisingly affordable prices. Enter the coupon code WHISPER at checkout and receive 10% off your entire order. Order your new incubator today at Brincy.com. That's B-R-I-N-S-E-A.com. Cackle Hatchery is a third-generation, family-owned and operated hatchery. They offer over 193 varieties of poultry shipped directly from their facility in Missouri. It's their mission to enhance your life by providing you with quality poultry for showing, meat, enjoyment, eggs, and pets. They specialize in hatching purebred poultry and shipping day-old chicks right to your local post office since 1936. 4-H and FFA Youth Poultry Clubs get a 10% discount. Check out their website, CackleHatchery.com, for posted weekly specials and discounts. That's CackleHatchery.com. And now we return to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer with your host, Andy Schneider. All right, thank you very much for uh, staying with us today. I also want to make a special announcement when we're uh, talking about sponsors of the show. Um, we do and have picked up a new um, premier sponsor for this broadcast in our social media and for Chicken Whisperer LLC, and that is Tucker Milling out of Guntersville, Alabama. Uh, they are a large feed production company and um, we've been using their feed here on the homestead for quite a while that's a totally different story I'll I'll, kind of share with you how um, I I reached out to them and uh, explaining about about their feed and our experience with the feed here on the homestead that'll be a different show I'm going to have Tucker Milling on uh, probably here in the third coming up towards the end of April and we'll we'll, we'll officially announce the big um, uh, sponsorship but um, and why and it's a really interesting story how that, that that they came on board and how it took place. I think it'll, it'll really really interest you um, versus just a lot of these folks that just say hey send me money and I'll put you a link on the on the website and you can be a sponsor like some of these blogs doesn't work that way here folks and so uh, it's uh, I'm really excited about that relationship. All right, let's get on with our topic for today: addressing common questions found on chicken forums. Uh, with my guest, welcome, Dr. Uh, Maurice Pateski is a poultry veterinarian epidemiologist out of UC Davis. Welcome to the show. Okay, I don't hear anything. Let's see. I see. Let me try to. Oh, oh, thanks, nope, Andy. There. Sorry, I had you on mute. I apologize. <laughs> Good to be here. <laughs> you, after 12 years, trust me, still happens to the best of us, including myself. Uh, I came back from a commercial well, break one time. Uh, uh, it was one of the most probably a show this year, and I came back from commercial break. Just started yapping and yapping, and then I looked down, and and and, and the red the red light wasn't on that says on air. So I'm like, ooh, that's not good. So I unmuted myself and went back in and yep. yapped everything I just said, but yeah, it happens to the best of us. So thank you that, so much. That for, um, could be a lifesaver. Um, it could also be a, a kind of a <laughs> awkward kind of 
situation. I also, I wanted to mention, I, I, so I am taking this call from home, obviously, because uh, we're, we're practicing social distancing. Um, and I wanted to mention, I was, I was getting my kids ready for your, the grand introduction to the radio show. Cause I love it so much. And it makes me laugh every time I hear it. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it didn't play. And I'm like, Oh no, it didn't play. So then yeah, I'm glad that you, you didn't change your format and that you, you still played it. Cause my kids were, and my wife were laughing up a storm while they were listening that, to it. So that is awesome. We need that right now. That's good. <laughs> at, the, so. at the next break. Uh, I know you also like the, this, the, uh, um, super chicken um, clips that I have. So when I go to when I come back from the next break, or maybe during the next break, you can gather them all around, and I'll do some uh, fun chicken whisper, uh, chicken super chicken oh, things. Oh, that and, would be great, and make, and make them laugh at that. But yeah, I know it caught me off guard too. Twelve years, it's the first time it's never played. I'm like, something's <laughs> wrong here. I can't jinx myself. This is we can't we can't start a show without the theme song that we've used for over a decade. Yes. So yeah, I had to do. That. Thanks for. I know that's kind of a disappointment, but I, I did. I have it over here in the audio clips as well. So I was like, I can manually play this. It may have been, I don't know, when I was setting up the show, possibly could have hit the button that, that uh, um, not deletes, but turns off the intro song. I have to look when I do the next show and see if it's if it got hit or whatever. But I, I'll definitely fix that problem um, for the next show. But we, we got it done anyway. So. We may have a lot of new listeners to, to the show because there's a lot of people around the country right now uh, that are getting new baby chicks. Not you know normally this time of year anyway, but also it seems like there's been some. They've called it panic buying with you know uh, a TSC or a local farm store will get in a bunch of baby chicks. There was one story that caught the news where um, one person, the first person who walked in, bought them all, um, and then of course people are just buying tons and tons. But I want to I want to stress something for folks that because I've reached out to all the hatcheries and of course the hatcheries that are sponsors here and um i'll use ideal poultry for an example i reached out to terry and and uh, kevin and janet there and i said uh hey what, what are y'all seeing what's going on you know this, this is getting blasted all over creation about panic buying and whatnot and and uh, they were like you know you know as well as i do you know let's look at this logically it's two weeks before easter or it was when, when i reached out to them and all these headlines were coming available at uh, two weeks before easter we pretty much always sell out the two weeks before easter so number one this is a, this isn't really anything new for this time of year this time we you know most of the hatcheries or a lot of them sell out or we're looking into may um and uh for and maybe into june for the next delivery dates but if you yes you add in the panic buying that is happening and now they're saying i think i saw where my pet chicken may not even have uh, their next shipment date would be in august they're booked through august um and uh ideal being if not the largest provider for feed stores and backyarders uh, six million chicks every year that they ship out they're not looking that far out at this time so um but so so don't don't panic folks it's not that all oh, the hatcheries are out because people are panic buying it's two weeks before easter and they're always out normally or, or running behind around two weeks before Easter. It's the hottest time of the year. Um, but they did address that. Yeah, we we're, we're seeing some increase like we did. And they mentioned years like 2008 where we had the last kind of uh, financial uh, um, instability, if you will. But they're, uh, they're comparing this year to some of those other years where we had instability for whatever reason. Um, so, folks, it's not just because people are panic buying. It just so happens to fall where Easter is running around here. So I wanted to share that. But we have a lot of new folks that are getting the chicks, and it's unfortunate, really. And I get it. I totally do. I'm not going to bust their chops too much. But, you know, when when I see posts on some of these forums and whatnot, Doc, uh, where I, literally I saw one where it said, I'm heading out to get my new baby chicks 
tell me what I need for baby chicks. And, <laughs> and, 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 and I'm just like, oh, my gosh. You know, I mean, we've all made those. Everybody on the planet has made kind of those those uh, opportunist mm-hmm. type of purchases and things. We all have this, that, or the other. And I know it happens in the dog world and the cat world and whatnot. But um, there's a lot of it going on, and, and, and they'll they'll openly post in, in in one of these forums and say, "Hey, you know, well, I just got these chicks. What, what what do I need?" And it's unfortunate they don't they don't prepare more. So some of that will fall over into uh, our questions today. But um, it is happening, and the show is not to bash anybody. It's to really clarify um, some information and give you the right information uh, based on what what is out there. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, open up. Um, some of these questions, and I, and I know you had a listed one through seven, and I think we'll probably kind of start in that order. And I'll, I'll I'll try to work the question up and explain what what I've seen out there and why I think this question is something we need to address in, in the show today. And all these pretty much came from these Facebook uh, chicken groups that that are out there when I see people post things. So the first one we have here is really kind of the the good, bad, and ugly with giving Thailand 50 for every little sneeze, cough, or watery and swollen eye. And we often see that, um, we often see that where someone will post, uh, you know, uh, sometimes they have a picture, sometimes they don't, but uh, they'll say, hey, I just saw my um, uh, chicken cough one time, my chicken sneezed, uh, they have a swollen eye, they have drainage from, and, and they'll post something like that in one of these forums. And then what you'll have is, um, 50% of the people, number one right now, the response is, well, you need to give Thailand, go to, go, to, go to Tractor Supply, buy Thailand 50, you need to give one cc in the breast every other day or whatever whatever they think that, that dosage should be and how often and how long, and they're all pretty much different, unfortunately. Um, and, and to back this up with some information, um, a couple of years ago, they banned all water-soluble antibiotics from the feed stores due to overuse in this exact type of scenario. Oh, my chicken sneezed one time. What do I need to do? Go get this. Mix it in the water. Give it for so many days. Well, that got so rampant due to the irresponsible uh, and overuse of the, the antibiotic, they removed them all from the shelves. So, and, and now what's left is what they're running to. You need to go to Tractor Supply and get Thailand. So that's the number one answer. And so when I see that posted now, uh, on say one of these um, uh, Facebook groups, you know, my chicken has watery eye or it sneezes or it coughs. What should I do? <laughs> Normally, if I'm the first one to see it and respond, I'll, my, my comment will be Thailand 50 comments coming in three, two, one, and then of course here here they, here they all come. And so I wanted to talk with you know you, Doc, uh, Dr. Pateski, uh, about this about um, and, and we all know the challenges as far as oh, there's not a vet near me, or I'm not going to drive an hour for a vet or drive, drive two hours for a vet, or I'm not going to, or I just can't afford that or whatever. So they're, they're grasping for straws and, and what do I need to do? But that's why we're asking you. So, you know, in that scenario, uh, what is the good, the bad, and the ugly with just running out, buying some Thailand 50 from the shelf and giving one CC in the breast every other day or every day or whatever the case, you know, whatever was posted, what, what do we need to be wary regarding that? Yeah, so it's a really good question, and um, it's a like all things, it's not just a yes or no answer. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to mention one quick thing, two quick things before sure. uh, we get started. So first of all, I want to make sure um, everyone is doing as well as possible. I'm, I'm glad uh, through the magic of radio that we can all chat with each other, um, and either during the radio show or after the radio show, people can always uh, email or call me and um, ask any kind of poultry questions they have. So. Um, 
you know, I'm uh, at a university. We're here to help um, and uh, realize that people have all kinds of questions that they always can't think of within within the hour. So always <laughs> yeah. um, feel free to reach out. That's, that's part of my job. Uh, the other thing I want to mention just really briefly on the high path um, outbreak. Um, so yes. the low path strains were in North Carolina and um, uh, North Carolina gave South Carolina a gift. The uh, high path strain huh. is in South Carolina. So, okay, got um, it. And, and just and the only thing I wanted to mention, this is exactly the reason. This is kind of a textbook example about why when we get a low path strain for a specific two specific types of low pathogenic avian influenza, the H5 or the H7 type, this is why um, we, can, we, we depopulate, um, which is a euphemism for saying that we, uh, we have to euthanize all the birds um, that are affected with those low-path H5 or H7 strains because we know, and this is a perfect example of it, unfortunately, those low-path strains can mutate um, and mutate into high-path strains. Um, so if we can reduce the amount of virus in the environment, that um, virus cannot replicate in dead cells. Um, so unfortunately, uh, the, the, the best method to prevent the high paths from forming. And the high paths in poultry kill basically everything that they see as far as poultry goes. So we, we, we want to, any H5 or H7 low path that we see, we, we depopulate the birds in order to prevent it from mutating eventually, like it did in this case, into a high path and causing even a bigger problem in the long term. Um, anyway. Um, and if, if if listeners right now are interested in that, because I know a lot of listeners right now are thinking, yes, but if we let some actually survive through it, then now they have immunity, then we can breed from that. Believe me, folks, all, all, every, all the questions that are going through your mind, we have addressed on the show over the last 12 years. You can go back and look at some of our archive shows that are listed as, you know, talking about the outbreak or equine and uh, avian influenza, all of that stuff, and then get um, – uh, well versed in and why they do and why we do what we do, uh, like with USDA and whatnot, mm -hmm. uh, when they have these outbreaks because we've we've covered this a lot and some people right now are thinking, hey, this is new to me, you know, you know, now they have all these new questions. We can definitely go back and listen to some of the previous shows and get well versed in all of the high path, low path, what it means, and uh, even what the numbers mean, the letters mean, and everything, and why they treat it like they do. Yep, I'm a, I'm a veterinarian. I love animals. That's why I became a veterinarian. Um, I don't like killing animals, um, obviously. And um, this is this is unfortunately the best option. The other thing I'll mention just really briefly. So our lab, we just got a four-year, one million dollar grant um, to better understand uh, from the USDA to better understand uh, the main reservoir for highly pathogenic avian influenza, which are waterfowl. Um, we don't have good surveillance systems in the, in the United States to monitor waterfowl, so we're using some land satellite imagery and some telemetry and also um, uh, uh, radar, believe it or not, to uh, better understand where waterfowl are, because if we understand where the waterfowl are, then we can um, better inform the commercial poultry industry, the backyard poultry industry, about where waterfowl are located. And if we know that better, we can do better testing of waterfowl to understand what kind of viruses are floating around in the environment. So we can talk about that another time. But um, Yeah. Just and then right now also, to, oh, with, the, yeah. with the transition of the weather, we're getting into spring warmer weather. We've got some of those uh, uh, flyways, like the eastern seaboard flyway, uh, where the birds are now, I guess, for lack of a better term, migrating or heading back up north uh, from flying south. 
for the winter. Um, I haven't looked at that, any of that data uh, recently because it's just popped up on my radar today regarding the high path. But I'm guessing that that eastern seaboard flyway is pretty active right now with birds heading back home. Yep, absolutely. So same thing in all the flyways. All the birds are moving back north again. Um, so they move down south to enjoy our relatively <laughs> temperate and moderate winters. Um, and then they head back up to um, the Arctic and to, um, in, into, into northern areas um, where they can um, start taking care of their, um, of their chicks. Um, so it, it, there is a seasonal aspect to flu in birds. It's like there's a seasonal aspect to flu in, in, in humans, and we, we can certainly talk about that um, as we uh, um, on another time. Um, so just yeah. transitioning to Thailand. So so sure. um, so uh, Thailand is the, the the brand name for an antibiotic we call Thylacin. Um and Thylacin is, is in general, if we ever have a respiratory problem, it's kind of considered one of those broad spectrum, um, if you will, antibiotics. I, I think a lot of people don't like, especially in veterinary medicine, don't always like the term broad spectrum because I think people will overinterpret that to mean like, oh, if there's some kind of respiratory problem, I'm going to give it, you know, Tylen or Tylosin. We can use those terms interchangeably. By the way, when people say Tylen 50 or Tylen 200, all they're referring to is the concentration. So Tylosin 50 means there's 50 milligrams of Tylosin per ml. Um, and uh, Tylosin 200 is 200 milligrams per ml. It can be given as an injection or it can be given in, in the water. Um, so just, just to clear out, to, to clarify some of those kind of semantics there. Um, so Tylosin in general is, is um, used for uh, various types of bacteria, um, including, you know, probably the most relevant for poultry, uh, would be mycobacteria, uh, mycoplasma, excuse me. Um, and mycoplasma is, I think, uh, hopefully a lot of people realize, mycoplasma doesn't truly kill a lot of birds, um, but it does cause a lot of sniffling and upper respiratory um, type um, clinical signs. So you might see some inflammation or tearing um, and or, you know, kind of goop coming out of the eyes, um, sniffly, snargling, kind of all those um, kind of clinical signs that we kind of look at our birds and we're like, something's going on, there's some kind of upper respiratory infection. Unfortunately, we can't really differentiate that from, you know, some of the potential viral um, causes of infection. So no one, no matter how good you are as a poultry veterinarian um, or, you know, a, a pathologist, whatever it be, no one is going to look at a bird and be like, oh, yep, that's mycobacteria as opposed to infectious laryngotracheitis or infectious bronchitis um, or some upper respiratory um, you know, bacteria um, that, that we can talk about. Um, so I think that was the reality uh, is... I think that was yeah. kind of leading... You may have just answered kind of like question number five we had um, because oftentimes I'll ask when they just go to reach for Thailand 50, well, have you identified if this is a viral or bacterial illness or infection? And number five was, are there any telltale signs to differentiate between a viral or bacterial illness? Because if it's, you know, Thailand may not mm -hmm. work at all, even if you're giving it. So uh, you may have kind of answered that, but we'll get to that next. But you, you kind of keyed in on that, um, if there's any yep. way nope. that you can tell. <laughs> Yeah, you're absolutely right. There, there unfortunately is not. We can't even, you know, at this point, we, we can't tell virus versus bacteria uh, for the most part. Sometimes we can tell some parasites because we can actually see them 
Um, mm-hmm. But, um, you know, this is why we have pathologists and virologists and bacteriologists um, that, that will take the birds. Now, just a couple things. So in the commercial poultry world, um, how do we do this? So you go into a barn, there's 10,000 birds, the veterinarian or the flock manager just will listen. And, and this is something we can learn about. And they'll listen and listen and listen when they'll walk the, the, the barn. And when they listen, they'll hear on a, on a normal day, they'll, they won't hear, you know, basically too much. They'll see um, bright, alert, and responsive birds just moving around, bouncing around. On a bad day, they might hear some kind of um, wheezing or um, kind of gurgling. Um, they might pick up a bird or two and notice there's some discharge coming out of their eyes or nose. And that's when, you know, in a barn of 10,000, what a, what a poultry veterinarian will do is they'll take a bird, they'll euthanize that bird, and then they'll open it up um, and they'll do what we call a field necropsy on it. Um, and they'll be like, you know what, I see, um, you know, just this um, abnormal discharge um, and fluid that is in the upper respiratory tract. And they'll be like, you know what, I'm going to take a couple birds and I'm going to take them to a diagnostic lab. And the diagnostic lab, is then going to try to isolate uh, virus or bacteria to see what the cause is so they can tell the veterinarian, like, this is the disease we're dealing with. How do you want to, to respond? Do we want to use antibiotics? Do we have to consider depopulation? Um, do we want to, um, you know, change the ventilation or the husbandry practices? Whatever it be, they, they, the more you know about the disease, the better you can kind of um, you know, respond appropriately. Viral, obviously, you would never give Tylosin. First of all, it'd be a waste of money. Uh, and second of all, it's not going to work. So you're just wasting time and money at that point. So that's the way we do it in the commercial world. Now, in the smaller, you know, backyard world and small commercial world, like maybe some of the folks that are, that are on the phone um, today, we have to kind of take that information, what, about the, what they do in the commercial world, and adapt it to our world. So if you have three birds, four birds, five birds, you know, taking two birds down to the diagnostic lab every time your birds have a sniffle is probably not going to be a, a useful or a valuable lesson. You know, it's, it's the, the disease, the treatment is worse than the disease in that, in that, in that scenario. And, and I think that's why people have kind of been able to, through the magic of the Internet, they've been saying, oh, well, let's see what they, the commercial folks use. Um, and we know that mycoplasma is somewhat ubiquitous in the environment, especially for backyard poultry. It's just basically um, there's one specific species of, of mycoplasma that, for the most part, is, is just ubiquitous in poultry. Now, a couple things I would tell people. So one thing is if we know mycoplasma is common in backyard poultry, if I found it in my backyard poultry, would I be so surprised? Eh, I'd probably shrug my shoulders. Does mycoplasma kill a lot of birds? Eh, not really. Um, does it affect production? Yes, you betcha. Um, but are we in the backyard poultry world because we are trying to optimize our feed conversion ratio and our egg weights and, and those type of things? Uh, no. So, uh, you know, one certainly appropriate thing to consider is nothing. It's basically just to, to optimize management and, and not to, you know, for lack of a better phrase, to chase your tail every single time your bird gets a sniffle and give them an antibiotic. Because the reality is, is most birds will recover. Um, and um, they will generate some immunity to that type of mycoplasma, and that's fine. So if we, if we were aggressive um, and we said, oh, I want to treat with antibiotics, and let's say we just decided to randomly treat with tylosin because we're like, eh, our birds are showing clinical signs that are similar to mycoplasma in addition to some other diseases, but we know mycoplasma is probably at the top of our list or near the top of our list because it's so common in backyard poultry. 
Um, if I treated with a Titleson at that point in the water or the injection or whatever it be, what would I get out of that? Well, okay, so the reality is, let's say that perfect scenario happens, I treat, I kill most of the mycoplasma in there, but the reality, unfortunately, is that the antibiotics are great at killing enough of the bacteria to diminish the clinical signs, um, but no antibiotic, including Tylosin, is, is, is going to totally eliminate the organism. So the reality is you, now that bird is, is going to be a carrier, just like it's a carrier if it was infected and it recovered on its own. And potentially you're going to have this kind of come back again because you didn't um, kind of let the bird, you didn't let the disease kind of work its course through the flock. And mycoplasma, like some other diseases, it's not avian influenza. It's not virulent Newcastle disease. It doesn't cause a ton of mortality. And it's going to be in your flock. I mean, there's, there's almost no way to basically avoid it with the, with the general husbandry practices that most backyarders use. And that's just the reality. So my general recommendation when it comes to, to Tylosin is that unless we're dealing with some virulent strain of a respiratory bacteria, that we that we're able to confirm is sensitive to Tylosin. I'll talk about that in a second. Then I, I am less inclined, especially for these diseases that are that are not that don't cause a lot of mortality. I'm I'm very I'm I'm, I'm very rarely inclined just to kind of willy nilly treat with Tylosin. Now, if I had some mortality in my flock, let's say I had ten birds and I had those clinical signs and I had some sniffles and there wasn't a diagnostic lab next to me and I can't afford a veterinarian. Um, in those scenarios, you know, I, I, I could see why people might want to consider trying it. Um, but that's a rare combination of things to happen. Um, and, you know, while I don't, you know, while I can't, as a veterinarian, while I can't really condone just the willy-willy-willy-nilly usage of antibiotics because we have this whole issue of antibiotic resistance and using antibiotics, the more we use them, the, the, the more likely we are to get resistance over time, and we only want to use them, you know, appropriately. And what I mean by appropriately is that when we identify a bacteria, um, a lab identifies the bacteria, and they literally test that bacteria against all the different antibiotics that you can use in poultry, and they see which ones work and which ones don't work. And then they make a prescription or a recommendation based on that. That is the right way to do it. I, I completely understand when, when people are like, oh, man, that's going to be a hard, tall order for me to do, especially, you know, for example, right now. But I also think when it comes to mycoplasma, we're, we're not dealing with, you know, a plague or anything like that. We're, we're dealing with a relatively mild disease that is going to cause some sniffles, um, and, and it does not cause a lot of mortality. Um, so if, if we can kind of... Um, manage as best as we can, isolate any affected birds, um, quarantine them. We all know what that term means by now. If I get new birds, this is where people, I think, really kind of fail a lot, unfortunately. When, it, when you get any new birds, um, and I'm not, you know, kind of condoning Craigslist and backyardpoultry.com and all these things, but when you do get new birds, you know, make sure you quarantine them for at least 10 to 14 days. And if those birds in quarantine show any clinical signs, you cannot introduce them to your healthy flock or else that disease, whatever they're carrying, is going to get transmitted to your healthy flock. Um, so I think all those caveats are important to consider. I am, you know, the older you get, I, I've become much more of a pragmatist. So, you know, the way you're taught in vet school is like, look, you should only use antibiotics, you know, if you know that antibiotic is, is effective against whatever pathogen you have. And, and that is the perfect world scenario. And I 
still subscribe to that, but I also understand that there's this reality, especially right now, where people might not be able to get to a diagnostic lab, and they might have birds that, that are showing some clinical signs, and they're a little worried about those clinical signs, and maybe they had some mortality, and, and like I said, they couldn't go to a vet, can't afford it. Um, diagnostic labs maybe are not, um, have all the same hours that, that, that they might, um, you know, kind of need to, to, to make them available. So. Under certain circumstances, I understand why people would use them, but that's a pretty rare kind of scenario I sketched out there. The, the biggest thing, and I'm going to say this for the hundredth time, and, and I think we know this uh, intuitively now with, with uh, COVID-19, you know, you, you are fighting a losing game if you wait, uh, if, if your 99% of your energies are focused on treatment. Um, you, you, the prevention, prevention, prevention. So how do we prevent people from getting sick? How do we prevent chickens from getting sick? That's where our efforts need to be focused, and that's where we focus on husbandry, biosecurity, um, air quality. So in, in general, if we have clean air, clean water, and clean food, um, that, those are the things that are going to make our birds healthy and their immune systems healthy, and they're not going to be as susceptible to disease. And if they do get infected, even with those things, which happens a lot, the, the, the mortality, the death associated with that is going to be very low, if anything at all. Does that kind of answer the question a little, or what's your? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. I just uh, you know, kind of let everybody know. You did a great job. The good, the bad, and the ugly, and and um, you know, an understanding of why they have the, the thought process of that and whatnot. But what what really to just a deeper knowledge, really, of uh, of what they're doing, why they may not need to do that, and and really, do they really need to? Is it really necessary at this point? Because uh, you see that mm-hmm. first sniffle, that first sneeze, or that first cough, or um, whatever the case may be that they're looking at, and then you know, asking for help, and then uh, getting that Thailand 50, <laughs> um, mm. getting that Thailand, you know, the 50 cough so many times. So um, yeah, perfect, perfect, perfect. Let's um, let me go back over here to the next list that we have. And the second one, this, this came around um, uh, probably about two or three weeks ago. And uh, somebody had a legitimate question that said, you know, why – I'm trying to think if it was why have my hens stopped laying or something like that. And, and, and they, were, they were older, and then people started going down all the list of why they may not be laying. So aside from – all of the issues, we don't have time to name them all, like, well, you've got, you know, let's talk about your husbandry, let's talk about illness causes, let's talk about, you know, all these different variables. Um, uh, in her case, she felt like it was just because the hens were getting older, based on other questions people asked her about why Why do you think they've stopped laying. So, so uh, and then somebody had, had talked about, oh, well, um, uh, she stopped laying because she ran out of eggs. And, you know, a hen is only born with so many eggs, and once she's laid them all, then that's all you're getting. Uh, and, and there's a lot of bad information circulating about that that can be in two years. So this hen's going to lay all their eggs that they were born with in two years because it's a production hen, a production red, and then that's all you're going to get. Um, and so I, I got kind of into a, a debate with her saying, no, that's not the case. When that when that chick, that pullet, you know, which ends up being a hen, hatches out of that egg, it has 
all of the ovum that it's ever going to have, you know, thousands of them. I said, even if it laid an egg every single day for 12 years, it's not going to run out of eggs. There are other reasons why it may not lay or stop laying, but it's not going to be because they just run out of eggs and they've laid them all, and that's all you're going to get from this particular breed or that particular hen. So basically, aside from all these issues like illness and lighting issues and things like that, because um, it comes up a lot. Why do hens slow down their laying and then really eventually stop as they get older, even if they still have maybe thousands of eggs left uh, in, in them as a hen that they're born with? And, and normally we hear folks say, okay, around two to three years, you will may start, especially if you're logging your eggs you get every day from your flock, you know, two to three years, you may start to see a little bit of slowdown. And then really by five, you'll really be able to tell that they've, they've really slowed down their laying. And it, and it may not be an, a light issue, a, a temperature issue, a disease issue. It's just, this is a hint. This is the way that, you know, that biology here, and they will start to slow down. So on that aspect, eliminating all the illnesses and other lighting causes, why, why does the hen slow down laying as they get older, even if it's a healthy hen? Yep. So another, that's an interesting question. And it's, it's funny because when you, when I, I saw that question, I'm like, well, it, it's just because, but obviously we, <laughs> we want kind of a more <laughs> interesting answer than that. So as you, as you mentioned, the, the ovary, um, the ovary has uh, thousands of, of tiny ova, um, basically future yolks that can either be, um, if they're fertilized, uh, they could be grow into, into chickens, um, or if they're unfertilized, they can turn into table eggs. But you're absolutely right. The, the, the rate limiting step, uh, if you will, is not the amount of, um, of ova that, that are in that one ovary because chickens are very efficient, like all birds, and they only have one ovary, not two ovaries like uh, mammals do because uh, birds evolve to, to everything is focused on reducing weight so, so birds can fly. Um, so having one ovary is, is seen as kind of one of those evolutionary um, kind of um, – um, kind of compromises along with not lacking teeth that all birds do because teeth are, are so dense and, and would make birds uh, a little heavier to fly. Um, so, but those, the ova that are in the, in the, in the reproductive tract, thousands of them with birds that have to live for a long time before we'd exhaust those things out. I haven't done the math, but yeah, you're talking a decade or two um, to probably get to that point. Um, so then the question is like, okay, so, so what happens around year two or three so, um, you know, when you, I don't know, when I was growing up, we always talked about, you know, how to calculate a, uh, a dog's uh, lifespan in human years, and we used to multiply by seven. Um, so if you have a two-year-old dog, it's really 14 years old in, in human years. There's actually some really good calculations on that, just on a side note. If you take the natural log of your dog's birthday, or how, many, how old your dog is, um, and you multiply by 16 and then add 31 or 32, that'll give you the new uh, kind of calculation. So if you want that, I can, I can send that to you. It's kind of a fun calculation. But my point is, is that obviously um, birds um, are, have been domesticated for 10,000 years or so. We have um, the genetics companies and the poultry companies have, have really tried to maximize their production so we've done a lot of selection over, um, you know, the last 10,000 years to get to the, the layer breeds we have right now, for example, that are only productive, you know, for 50, 60, 70, 80 weeks, depending on, you know, the price of eggs, the price of feed, all those type of calculations. So, 
So the point is, is that um, after that period of time, what what happens to those to those birds? And and, and the simplest answer is they get old. Um, and um, in the commercial world, um, that means you know, in, in a physiologic sense, chickens will not lay eggs if they don't have enough calcium. Um, what are the limitations to calcium? Well, one of them is vitamin D. So if they're not getting enough vitamin D, they won't absorb calcium, for example. Um, as we get older, we get worse at um, absorbing vitamins and other nutrients. So that's why we take supplements when we're older. But if I had to guess what the, what the most, um, you know, kind of rate limiting step is to, um, with respect to why hens eventually stop laying, I would imagine it is nutritional in the sense that um, birds, if you give them the typical layer diet, um, that you can get commercially in older birds, it, it, it's not formulated to account for that lack of bioavailability of the vitamins, vitamin D, for example, that's necessary to absorb calcium. So with those kind of caveats, it, it's, it's just important to realize that especially in older birds, if we're giving them uh, chicken scratch and they're eating grass and worms and things like that, um, they're getting even less of their um, perfect you know, formulated diet from their commercial feed, and that probably contributes even a little more. But the, the bird will not produce eggs if it is going to um, cause what we call in the commercial world uh, layer fatigue. But basically, if they're expending all their calcium um, in their diet and they're also grabbing all this extra calcium from their bones, at some point, they, they have reached a, a, a point where they just will not produce eggs anymore because it would be basically dangerous to their survivability um, because they, they would have so many, um, uh, such a deficit of calcium that their, their bones would start fracturing and things like that. So uh, I would think it's the inadequate feed intake um, is probably the best um, explanation of why older birds, um, and it's not even inadequate feed intake, it's just the the improper kind of formulation of the of the commercial diets for older birds um and and in all honesty we probably don't want to push our chickens that much so as they get older it's probably a good thing if they stop laying because um, i get so many emails and phone calls about um, people that have older birds that are still laying and then at some point it's almost like a ticking time bomb at some point um, they start having um, you know, all kinds of reproductive, reproductive issues. So the shells get thinner, and when the shells get thinner, the eggs can crack internally, and, and that leads to huge infections. Um, so there's, there's so many things, you know, eggs can get stuck. There's just so many different things that happen as they get older reproductively that in a perfect world, actually, we, we'd hopefully that our, our two- or three-year-old chickens, hopefully hens, stop laying eggs, and they can just enjoy the rest of their life. Um, would, would be my preference because there are a lot of reproductive issues as they get older. Awesome. Okay, very good. Yeah, because you, you hear things that people say, well, if you add a light in the winter, then they'll stop laying sooner or they'll run out of eggs. That's what they'll say. If you add a light and have them lay through the winter instead of naturally having them rest, then they'll run out of eggs. My, my point here was just to kind of let everybody know it's not a uh, they run out of eggs issue because um, they do have those thousands and thousands that you had talked about. There's uh, other issues that you described are maybe a, uh, a medical issue or an illness or a lighting issue or something like that. So thanks for, for – um, 
kind of explaining that to us, and I just, you know, I, I, it sounds like the, the real answer is just because. <laughs> but the just, the just because, the science of just because, you explained very, very well. So if, if somebody asked that question and I went on a forum and I said, just because – then they would, you know, they would be like, "What?" I said, "Yeah, really, it's it's just because." But here's here's the, the, the reasoning by just because of, you know, the probably diet and, and as they get older and there's many different variables. There's a couple more here that I'm really a- anxious and in getting into. So I'm gonna I'm gonna skip number three for right now, and then I'm gonna go down to um, number. Six, because this is huge as well. Uh, the people listening now that spend a lot of time in the Facebook forums and, and groups will say, yep, this is absolutely a, a viral response that happens all the time. So uh, based on all the questions people ask and, and then all the answers of, hey, go by cord and give it to your chickens immediately, is that, you know, the, the, the become basically when in doubt, just give baby chicks cord if you suspect coccidiosis. And and so uh, it's it's become like the go-to thing because uh, people have a hard time identifying blood, say in the poop, or basically a lethargic chick, or so anytime. Literally, uh, uh, Doctor um, Pateski, you've got maybe I just got some baby chicks. They're not doing real good. Uh, they're very lethargic. They stop eating. They stop drinking. Um, and there may or may not be blood in in their stool. Um, literally, any it's it's interesting how any problems with baby chicks, the number one answer is corid, uh, amprolium. Go go get it and give it to your chicks. It's coccidiosis. Um, and, and so, I, I want you to, you know, I, I guess, kind of address that. We've done the coccidiosis classes tour and, and shows tour blue in the face. I'm not going to beat that dead horse, but really, uh, from a veterinarian standpoint, stand, standpoint, where. Um, I guess kind of like with Thailand 50, the good and the bad and the ugly of getting these less than a week old baby chicks and for what you have no clue why it's lethargic, why it's not eating, why it's not drinking and may or may not be blood in the poop. Um, and then you're just going to go run and just dose them with all this corid. Um, what, what are, what's the good and the bad, the ugly with, with that advice? Yeah, so uh, another really good question. So coccidiosis is, is also, um, like, Merrick's, uh, like Merrick's virus, is also ubiquitous in, in poultry environments, um, especially when you have dirt floors and, and things like that. It, it, um, it can persist. And, and um, coccidiosis is, is, I have a slightly different approach toward, um, and this is kind of just the dogma. So coccidiosis is ubiquitous in the environment. Uh, humans don't get the uh, same imeria um, or protocol parasite that that basically is the fancy name for coccidiosis um and um we know it's very common in birds uh, there are a bunch of different strains or types of coccidiosis um and corid which is just the the brand name of what's called amprolium um is a is a very common treatment for coccidiosis um you know because it's so ubiquitous because it does cause um a lot of severe clinical signs that can lead to, uh, unfortunately, that, that can lead to, to death in some cases. Um, the, the dogma, and I agree with this in, in poultry, is to use what we call a medicated feed, um, a, a medicated chick starter feed um, that has something like amprolium in it. Um, so what I would say is, um, and, and I am very cognizant and sensitive to issues of antimicrobial resistance, um, especially for bacteria that humans can potentially get from uh, food animals, 
like chickens. So, for example, we never want to have antimicrobial-resistant salmonella um, that, that we get exposed to um, because there are scenarios where that can certainly be a bad thing. So we don't want to use really high-level human antibiotics in our poultry because we don't want to um, uh, cause any type of antimicrobial resistance to that. Now, like I said, with coccidiosis, we don't have uh, any equivalent or analog to um, coccidia or those Imerian humans. So the treatments are irrelevant uh, for human health if we do get any resistance at all, um, which with any kind of drug, you're eventually going to get some resistance. So because the coccidiosis is so ubiquitous in the environment, um, it is um, the general recommendation, especially if you're raising your, your birds on the ground, on the floor, on dirt, um, it is really, really, really important. I would highly recommend that everyone use medicated um, starter feeds um, because now you're giving the, the, the problem is, well, the coccidiosis might not kill your birds. Now you've, you've kind of suppressed your bird's immune system. And now if there's another infection that's floating around, that's, it's usually that second infection that's going to kind of um, kind of cause a bunch of mortality, whatever it is, what, even if it's just something as simple as E. coli. So the, the, um, when they say when in doubt, give your baby ticks forward, I, I would agree with that. But a step before that, I would say I can't think of any reason why you would not use a medicated feed as a chick starter feed. Once the chicks are over, once they're beyond their, their, their chick starter feed, you know, it's 12 weeks or whatever it be, uh, 14 weeks um, when you switch to a layer feed, um, then and only then, and, and probably switch to layer feed around 15 or 16 weeks just, just to be accurate here, um, then and only then do you, do you switch to non-medicated feeds. Because at that point, very rarely are they going to get coccidiosis. Um, and in the backyard, small poultry world, um, there's only really two feeds you're ever going to use, a starter feed and a, and a layer feed. So, sure, if you had, um, you know, some additional diarrhea in young birds and they, they kind of checked off all the boxes on, like, eh, that could sort, that's probably coccidiosis, I would be fine with adding on ampro amprolium, actually. And this is one of those scenarios where I'm like, eh. If you're going to use a drug kind of willy-nilly and, and, mm -hmm. and just see what happens in young birds <laughs> that show the clinical signs, I would be fine with, with that one as opposed to um, Tylosin. Okay. Now, let me let, – here's another scenario for you kind of in, in play. There there will be some folks that um, when when – the poster has, you know, I've got this lethargic chick or the, you know, they're not eating, not drinking. Maybe there's some blood in the poo, whatever. Some folks at that point will say you need to, if you're not already, switch them to um, a medicated feed. But that just, just switching to medicated feed, they've already made in that scenario not be eating and not be drinking or not be eating and drinking much. Uh, you, you the, the, the dose of the amount and say medicated feed, once you have those clinical signs, not going to hack it. You need at that point you need to dose the, the um, chorid in, in the water to, to actually treat this versus just putting some medicated feed in their starter and hoping that might be enough to help. If I, if I understand your question, so the, the medicated feed is what we call static. So it doesn't kill all the Imeria, but it, it just doesn't let the Imeria get above a certain level. Um, okay. So if you did have some clinical signs or if you brought your bird to the diagnostic lab and they said, you've got a you know, raging coccidia, um, Imeria infection here, in that scenario, we would add amprolium um, in addition to your medicated feed. Um, is that what mm -hmm. your question was? Well, I just is, – is, um, is using – 
switching to medicated feed would not be a alternative to starting the Corid regimen. Um, so, oh, so yeah, not, absolutely. Yes, I agree with you. You would not want to because it's not a high enough dose. So you, you couldn't gotcha. just say, oh, I'll keep. That's a really good point. You, you wouldn't just say, oh, well, I'll I'll cross my fingers and if something happens, I'll just switch to medicated feed. That would help a little, but but not enough. Absolutely. Gotcha. Okay. Because sometimes that m- most folks just say go to track supply, get the cord, and then add it to your water and and follow directions, whatever. And then and of course I want to, to stress to people as well. My understanding is with that there is no egg withdrawal anyway. I mean we're talking about chicks, but, but most folks it's not an antibiotic. And that, that, when, when I do my classes, mm-hmm. I'm like, look, if you pull the refrain, uh, Doctor Petesky, I'm not going to use medicated because I want to do an, you know no antibiotics, no this, no that, no whatever. And so that's the first thing I stress to folks is that look, the, the medication in the chick starter is not an antibiotic antibiotic, nothing close. It's a coccidiostat that helps do exactly what you just said. And there's not even an egg withdrawal with that. Um, so it's, it's very safe. Um, but I also want to stress as well, and, and I will be the first to admit, because uh, like I said, I'm not the chicken expert. I'm just kind of the, the medium where I, I get people and experts together to write for the magazine, co-author my books, come on the show, da, da, da. Um, I, I've always known that, yes, if you have your bird's vaccinated for coccidiosis you don't want to use medicated starter but i just kind of um learned if you will because i had never shared this either i've always shared that if you haven't vaccinated for coxie you don't want to use medicated feed because it, it's it, it works mm-hmm. against each other but even even this week and i started sharing it if you're feeding medicated feed you also don't want to add a VitaPak to the water, vitamins, because it also kind of negates, just like you want to cut off all bi- vitamins when you give the, uh, the Corid, for example, for coccidiosis. But I was told by two poultry scientists this week, and I wanted to follow up, you know, I always try to do more than just one, one opinion, uh, that if you're giving medicated chick starter, they have these little packets you can rip open, vitamins and electrolytes. Uh, electrolytes are okay because it's mainly just salt. Uh, probiotic would be okay, but if you're feeding the medicated feed, you want to refrain from, while they're on that medicated feed, giving a VitaPak full of vitamins, specifically, I think it's B, because uh, of the absorption, reducing the absorption, and, and that sort of thing that kind of negates the the um, drug that's in the chick starter. So I wanted to stress that with folks uh, as well regarding, if you haven't vaccinated for coccidiosis, you don't want to feed the medicated starter, um, and then... Um, but also if you're feeding medicated starter, you don't want to just grab one of these vitamin packs thinking this is going to be great for the chicks. And I see everybody else do it if you're feeding the medicated. Um, yeah, so the, only, the only thing I would add to that is just that um, the vaccine is, is um, very effective, but that's usually only a commercial kind of, um, kind of vaccine. It's not available in small enough doses to really even consider it for smaller backyards, unfortunately. Um, so the reality is, is that when it comes to the small kind of poultry world, it, it's medicated feed and amprolium are your two um, kind of options. And there's Got a it. bunch of different types of medicated feed, but if you just get, you know, I, I know everyone, there's kind of this branding with organic and people see organic as superior. Uh, and that might be true in some cases or not true in some cases. I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert in that, but the only problem with organic starter feed is it's not medicated. So you can actually save yourself a couple bucks and get the actual starter medicated feed and have healthier birds. Um, that being said, I want to just mention one thing. Having sure. small amounts of coccidia in the environment is actually really, really good for your birds, and that's how they basically self-vaccinate. 
Um, so if you give them a huge load of anything, that's going to be too much to overwhelm their, their immune system. That's, that's just a kind of a basic kind of fundamental sure. you know, aspect of diseases. But if you give them small amounts of coccidia, that's actually the perfect way. You wouldn't, if, even if you could get rid of all the coccidia in the environment, which you can't, but even if you could, you wouldn't want to do that because now you're, you're not allowing their immune system to do what it was made to do, which is um, produce antibodies against um, any kind of uh, foreign organism. Yeah, and I would um, I'll let folks know the with the uh, vaccine. If you if you order from some of the major hatcheries, like like again, we'll say uh, like Cackle, and you've got Ideal Poultry, the McMurrays, the Welps. Um, uh, a lot of them do offer the coccidiosis vaccine. So, like you said, you know, just ordering the vaccine yourself and doing it yourself on your birds probably not a realistic scenario. But it's maybe a quarter to fifty cents per bird if you order from some of these larger hatcheries, uh, and I think that's an option. Just just like with the Merrick's disease, which is a great segue here, because that's one of the next questions here that, that we're going to talk about. We've done show upon show upon show. There's been articles in the magazine specifically about Merrick's disease, um, but this always seems to come to play, so we're not going to go down this rabbit hole of Merrick's and all this kind of stuff. Uh, poultry veterinarians and scientists across the board say if you're going to vaccinate for one thing and one thing only, make it Merrick's and, and the Merrick's vaccine for your birds because, man, it is out there. It's the number one killer uh, in, in the backyard birds uh, all around the, the country. And so the, the, big, um, the big question you hear a lot of times is once I give my birds the Merrick's vaccine, so I order my first 25 birds that I get this year with, say, the Merrick's vaccine, and then let's say I want to go and pick some up from a friend or from Craigslist or from the sale barn, or maybe next year I want to order 25 more, I must give all birds coming now onto my property the Merrick's vaccine or at least have them vaccinated before I bring them to my property. Are they susceptible to getting Merrick's from the initial birds that I got that are vaccinated with the Merrick's vaccine? So I'm hoping that I kind of describe that as, as clearly <laughs> as I can. If my first birds are vaccinated, that means all the other birds I bring on my property have to be vaccinated or I have to vaccinate them or they're going to get Merrick's from my initial vaccinated birds. How about that? <laughs> Yeah, so it's a this is a complicated topic, and it's, yeah. it's evolving all the time. <laughs> um, so in general, you know, to your point, if we're going to talk about, you know, what what's going to do in your chickens, um, number one, Merrick's, number two, Coxie. So uh, if we were going to really kind of appropriately, like, partition time over your radio show for, you know, the whole year, we'd probably spend 90% of the time literally on Merrick's disease. But obviously <laughs> these are the topics that are most important that are also more interesting. Um, but the vaccine, I mean, the, the commercial world vaccinates everywhere. Um, and it's, it's this exquisitely, um, you know, it's a really good vaccine when done correctly, uh, very safe. Um, but it only works if you give it at day one of age or you give it in ovo. That means it's given um, while the embryo is still developing. Um, remember, it takes about a chicken about 21 days to hatch or so. So it's usually around day 18 or so is when they do this kind of fancy in ovo vaccine. So if you do it at day two of age or six months of age or whatever, is that going to kill the bird? No. Is it going to work? Eh, we don't know. Probably not because the virus, that herpes virus, is ubiquitous in the environment. So, um, you know, just all things being equal, get your bird vaccinated by the hatchery in a perfect world. Um, I, I have my own very strong feelings. If, if a hatchery is not vaccinated against Merrick, I, I wonder what other shortcuts they're taking. 
Um, so I, I would be very feed stores and hatcheries that don't do that. I, I you know, if you're literally talking about tenths of a penny um, for the actual vaccine, you know, obviously there's some labor involved in that, but this is, this is really low hanging fruit. This is what kills all of, of our chickens. This is the main cause that kills our chickens and it's basically hundred percent preventable. Now, are there these really hypervirulent Merrick uh, viruses floating around? Absolutely. And, and we're not going to, you know, that's, 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 that's a conversation for a different time, but for the most part, vaccinate your birds. Now this topic of, if for some reason you've got some birds that are vaccinated and then some chicks are coming um, into your flock eventually and you don't vaccinate them, what are the, how does that play out? That's a really interesting kind of scenario. And the Merrick vaccine, and this is different than human vaccines, uh, from my understanding of human vaccines, the Merrick vaccine is what we call a leaky vaccine. Um, so it just basically means that the bird will still have um, some wild type and vaccine strains, which can be transmitted to other birds. Now there's some literature that says, and this is controversial, but there's some literature that says, if you take unvaccinated birds and you expose them to the vaccinated birds, that they can actually get Merrick's disease. Um, there's one paper that, that basically tried to kind of make that argument. There is other literature now that, that says the opposite, that says, okay, if you took unvaccinated birds and you expose them to vaccinated birds at day of age, that they can actually um, um, transmit the vaccine strain to those unvaccinated birds. So I, I would say, I don't know, the, 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 I'm not a virologist. This is getting a little kind of into the yeah. weeds for me. And, and at the end of the day, it's kind of a moot point. We just need to vaccinate our birds. Um, but right. it is an interesting topic. And, and it's interesting when I was reading last night about this, I'm like, oh God, this is getting even more <laughs> confusing now. Cause the, the literature is, is, is like all literature in science is evolving. And, and now there's some newer ideas about maybe how that leaky vaccine might be beneficial. Um, but um, vaccinating every bird is really essential. It, it is a, it's the lowest hanging fruit. You can, it's the best thing you can do for your birds as far as preventing disease um, and a disease that there's no cure to um, and a disease that can cause mortality and it's ubiquitous. So um, it's, and it's cheap. So make sure you work with feed stores. And if you hatch your own birds, get the Merrick vaccine. And, and we've got stuff on our website on how to give the, the vaccine. It's pretty easy to give. Um, so, so you can do it that way too. That's awesome. I'm going to cover uh, one more short topic. Then we have a caller. She messaged me from my Facebook page, and, and I had her call in. She's got a question. Um, and I may open it up to just a couple of more call-ins. We'll see how many folks are, are willing to take us up on that. Uh, let me go ahead and give the number so then people can actually um, call in. It's 347-637-3237. Again, that's 347-637-3237. That's the live call number. We have 50 open phone lines. We've got one already from this young lady that's got a question and wants to ask, but I definitely want to cover this one last really quick topic, and that would be number seven. Now, I remember I've asked you this before. It is, when can I start giving my baby chicks treats? And it's been it's stuck in my head all this time from when you explain this to folks that, um, and, and I'll keep it as simple, and you can agree, and then, yeah, I said that, and then elaborate on it a little bit more scientifically. But uh, my what I took away from that show, and we talked about this, Doc, was that look at that tiny little chick and then look at how little amount of that nutritionally balanced medicated chick starter that actually it can eat every single day or in a 24-hour period. Okay, it's a very, very little amount. So equally with, say, an adult hen, 
only 10% of their daily ration should be treats or food scraps or extracurricular uh, items. Um, and, and that almost is a, mo a moot point because most people, when they hear 10% of their daily ration, okay, they don't know what their 10% of, the, uh, of their, da their daily ration is to say what's 10%. And it ends up being about a tablespoon, a little tablespoon of mealworms per hen, uh, somewhere between a teaspoon and a tablespoon. And again, depends on what time of year, if they're eating more in the winter or less in the summer, uh, it, it's going to vary, uh, but somewhere between a teaspoon and a tablespoon of, say, mealworms per bird, and that's 10% of their daily ration. So, so when I remember you talking about this earlier, is that we really want to hold off as long as possible with these baby chicks, because, uh, again, nutritionally balanced chick starter, it's all in there for a good, healthy uh, nutrition for this chick. And you take this tiny little chick and the little bit that they're eating of this, and then all of a sudden give them some mealworms or a cut-up earthworm or, or, or food scraps or whatever, then, then since they're already eating a little bit to begin with because they're so tiny, you're really diluting their nutritional intake by doing that even more so at that age than, say, if it was a full-grown hen and you're giving too many treats, which your article a couple of months or a couple of issues ago about fat, the rise of fatty liver disease um, in backyard flocks. So it was tremendous. I share that all the time. But um, is, is that kind of the theory there that even more so you want to refrain from treats because of that, that diluting the little bit that they're already getting because they're so small of the nutritional feed? Yep. So you said it perfectly. And, and um, the only additional caveat I would add to that is starter feed um, is high in protein and low in energy. Um, the uh, chicken scratch is high in energy and very low in protein. So you're, you're basically giving the exact opposite of what you need to a, uh, a chick that's only eating, you know, literally like, you know, 10, 20, 30 grams, depending on how many weeks old we're talking about. Um, a feed every day, and we're, we're, we're messing with that ratio now. So you remember birds, uh, starter feed, what makes starter feed more expensive um, is that it's higher in protein, um, and protein is the most expensive component of feed versus layer feed, which is higher in energy. So if you were ever going to give any type of um, chicken scratch, which, you know, is, is the equivalent of potato chips, so um, I know people like to spoil their birds. I get that. I have, I have you know, I guess no problem with that within reason, um, but don't do it in your chicks because now you're, you're kind of messing with their um, ability to, to, to formulate muscle and, and grow. Um, and the diets are so tiny when they're chicks, you know, we're literally dealing with, you know, 20, 30 grams that if, if you, you know, sprinkle even, you know, if you change, if you added, you know, just a few grams to that, you're, you're really messing with a significant portion of their diet. Um, so I, I'd be very cognizant of that, especially in, in baby chicks, to not um, mess with their diet. In older birds, we all have, I know we all have our quirks, and, and people like to spoil their backyard chickens, and, and they like the chicken scratch. There's never any reason you would give chicken scratch from a nutritional perspective. Um, but obviously there's no reason I would eat, you know, potato chips from a nutritional perspective too. So, um, you know, obviously sometimes people like to spoil their birds. Um, yeah. You try and just try to remember that 10% rule and, and that for, for over a decade, that's kind of been the going, uh, you know, treats should be only 10% of their daily ration, but that absolutely means nothing to anybody if they don't know what that daily ration is. So 10%, okay, I know that's probably a little bit, but how, how little they don't get it. So say, sharing that, that's why I've started a few years ago saying, well, let's, let's analyze what that 10% 
really is. So you can have it, and I'll hold up a teaspoon in my videos and say, "Here you go. <laughs> this is what that means." Um, to to give them that to give them that visual of how how little that is. Also, my understanding I've heard this years past that their digestive system is still developing for 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 many many days after after they're born uh, as well in, in that baby chick. So um, I've heard that also being a reason not to add anything other than that that we'll call commercial uh, chick starter because their, their digestive system is still developing um, and, and growing. Yeah, I can't, I can't comment on that as much, but even the 10% rule, I, I think we just kind of anecdotally go with that, which, you know, I, I think I'm probably fine with, but, but you know, in a perfect world, they're fine, they, especially backyard birds. There's so much for them to do. They've got so many enrichments. There's grass and you know, all kinds of, uh, you know, creepy crawlers around there and humans to interact with. So they're, they're, doing, they're in a good spot. They're, they're doing fine. So um, cool. I know for some reason people really love to talk about, you know, making their own feed or trying all kinds of different um, kind of snacks and things like that. And, and I know we, we think, um, you know, it's kind of an interesting idea to use birds as our uh, kind of, you know, we can give them kind of some of our table scraps and things like that to be efficient about food wastage. Um, it's really interesting. I've had a couple companies reach out to me and they're trying to kind of solve this food wastage issue from restaurants and say, well, can we pelletize that? And I go, you can, but the problem is every time you come up with a new batch of, of this food wastage that you're trying to pelletize or create a crumble out of or whatever, You've got to do a you've got to do a complete nutritional analysis of that, and then balance that out with all the other feed that you're giving them, and and that that becomes so cost ineffective at that point. So that's still kind of a challenge. And every once in a while, I have some city or municipality with food wastage or restaurant, you know, that kind of wants to figure this out. And and, I, and unfortunately, I think we're just not the costs don't pencil out yet, unfortunately. I, um, th th there's a big uh, trend going on right now, um, and it's really started about a year ago. We tested some new feed on the market last year about this time, and other companies have kind of um, uh, jumped on the ship of, of this new trend, and that is basically taking scratch grains, just regular old three-way scratch, seven-way scratch, you know, 12-way scratch, whatever it is. Just you just I'm taking these scratch grains, and then I'm going to add pellets in it. And then I could call it a nutritionally balanced feed. Um, and I'm going to have a poultry nutritionist come on the show, and we're going to address this. And I'll share my experiences with, with testing out that feed. And now that more people are getting on the bandwagon with this, uh, but they're, they're taking essentially just scratch and adding pellets to it. So then as a complete feed or nutritionally balanced feed, only because the pellets are in there. And uh, long story short, my experiences was they ate all the scratch and left the pellets behind. Um, and, and it was, so ended up not being nutritionally balanced or if let's say they eat the, the tasty stuff first, like if you eat potato chips Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and then have a vegetable plate on Thursday, that's still, I don't think, nutritionally balanced. So it's um, so they eat all the scratch for three days, and then all that's left for the, the last day is the pellets. So they eat the pellets. Does that end up being really nutritionally balanced? So, But that's a show I have coming up in the future. Um, let's go to this call, and we'll wrap up the show, um, uh, Dr. Poteski, if we will. And I'm going to go to the phone lines and bring this caller on. Uh, caller, thank you very much for joining us today. If you'll just state your name and tell us what state you're calling from. Hi, I'm Naran Nicola, and I'm calling from Maryland. Okay, Naran in Maryland. And what's your question for Dr. Poteski? Uh, hi, Dr. Poteski. Thank you for taking my call. 
I'm wondering perhaps if there's a better way for me to be managing my uh, run that I have. It's an 18 by 18 foot run. It's bare ground and it's on about a five degree slope to prevent uh, rainwater from standing. Uh, it's open air with a hawk netting over the top. I live in a suburban backyard neighborhood, so of course we don't have to worry about, um, you know, raccoons and some of the more difficult predators. Um, and my coop is locked up at night. Uh, the chickens go in and it's, they're secure. So to manage this bare ground, what I've been doing is poop scooping it twice daily and keeping it on a slope. And then after these larger rainstorms, if I see standing water uh, or a real foggy ground, I try to avoid the muddy mess and put down some stall dry or some all-purpose sand with lots of little rocks in it, just kind of absorb up the moisture, keep it in the sun as much as possible and keep everything dry. But is there anything that I could be doing that might be better? Because I remember just enough microbiology to know that bacteria and um, uh, you know, other things can really fester on, especially if the chickens are eliminating in the same area all the time. Yeah, so uh, thanks for the call there, N Naren, Naren. Um, so Naren. Uh, a couple things, Naren, sorry, my apologies. Um, so a couple things, I, I like your slope idea. That's a really interesting idea as far as kind of moving water um, off of your land. I'm, I'm California, so we unfortunately don't have um, we're always trying to find uh, ways to store our water, but obviously you're a different climate. Um, the hawk netting is great. That's a really smart idea. Uh, the only thing I would stress is uh, potentially moving um, on your fencing to hardware cloth. Um, we do, at least in California and urban areas, we'll have raccoons and, and other um, types of um, predators and or wildlife. And hardware cloth, especially the quarter inch, Hardware cloth is, is really good at, at um, preventing um, any kind of wildlife from getting into the coop, whether they're going to be predatory oh. or just going to be eating food. Okay, yes, um, we have we worked with critter fence and determined the type of fencing. I have um, little one-by-one-inch galvanized, and then um, okay. I forget Perfect. the weight of it. But, but that's what we used uh, after I spoke with the DNR, and they told us what we could expect for predators. Mm -hmm. Good. That's, that's, so the only thing that you mentioned that I would probably move away from is straw. Straw is not absorbent. So straw is really good um, in nest boxes. Oh, I don't use um, straw. It, it was, um, I, I think I, st uh, you said stall dry or, or, or Stall or dry, yes. It's oh, stall dry. I don't know. I'm not familiar with that product. It's granulated. Uh, it's granules of clay and diatomaceous earth, and it just looks like little balls of clay. Ah, uh, interesting. Is it, absor is it absorbent? Very absorbent. You can put it down just as you would uh, if you were treating uh, ice on your sidewalk. It's like a real thin, thin layer like you would if you were using salt on ice. Okay. So if you're still having some standing water issues, so you don't want whatever the, what we call that, the substrate. So you want to be able to pick up that substrate and you don't want to be able to squeeze any water out of it because if you can squeeze water out of it, that's, you're absolutely right. That's a great way for bacteria and viruses to persist. Um, so in a perfect world, you want your, um, uh, your substrate to be friable and that's just a fancy way of saying you want it to basically be able to crumble easily. 
Um, mm -hmm. So if you still have some standing water in there, use more of that. So in the commercial poultry world in California, for example, we use rice holes, very absorbent, but we build up those rice holes, you know, at least six, eight, ten inches um, because um, the birds will kind of rototill it. They'll mix in their poop, um, and also it absorbs a lot of moisture. Um, so we don't have any kind of uh, ammonia smell or um, we're not creating an environment that allows bacteria to persist in or grow. Okay. So just more um, stall dry? More stall dry? Um, yeah. So I would definitely use more of that. I think, I think for most backyarders, one of the more common kind of challenges is, is what substrate to use. And in your environment, you definitely need a substrate because um, you're going to have, it sounds like, some standing water issues. Um, if you don't use that kind of substrate. So I'm relatively agnostic on, on what substrates people use, um, but just make sure you're using something that's absorbent and that you're using enough of it to absorb whatever the, you know, the environment is, is throwing at you. So okay. in, in our world, we'll build that up. In the commercial poultry world, they'll build that up literally six to eight inches, sometimes more. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, but as right. it sounds like um, you're doing a good job. Any other questions? Okay, I I have one more if you don't have another okay. caller. Sure, go ahead. Okay, so uh, over the years I've tried several different types of bedding for my coop, and um, what I've found is I just really don't like leaving any type of uh, excrement in the coop. I remove it every morning. It's, my coops are only four by five. They're small. Uh, the nesting material is disposable nest pads. But the floor area under the roosting bars, I've gone to just using sweet PDZ horse stall refresher granules and scooping that like a kitty litter box uh, every morning. It takes me about two minutes, and then I wipe down the roost, uh, the painted roost with. Um, you know, just a little bit of nice warm bleach water. So, is using just the sweet PDZ uh, horse stall refresher granules okay in terms of? I mean, I, I'm assuming bacteria is going to be growing in there as well under those roosting bars. Right. So, I'm I'm not familiar with that product. Um, so um, the whole point of the substrate in general is to basically be able to um, facilitate the birds to kind of rototill that um, whatever fecal material into that substrate, and then it, it kind of just goes away um, over time. So um, the, the nice part about um, most substrates is you don't have to clean, and this also depends a little on bird behavior, but you... You typically don't, do not have to clean your coop at all. Um, the birds basically, if you have a, a good amount of substrate and you have uh, an appropriate density of birds, so for backyards, you want to have it at a, a maximum of um, one bird per two square feet is my kind of general rule of thumb. Um, if you can follow that um, issue, you shouldn't have to clean out your coop. Um, I like the, the bleach cleaning kind of idea. Um, you just want to make sure you have good ventilation also, because that can also be harmful mm -hmm. to humans and or birds. Um, in mm -hmm. general, we don't clean and disinfect our coops, you know, more than once a year. Um, but, you know, obviously people are, are get really fastidious about things, and it's not going to hurt per se, but um, 
you know, it, for the most part, you're doing everything almost almost to excess, and, and I don't think that's bad at all. I just think it's, um, you know, if if, if uh, time is a is a is a is a is an issue, then you you, you probably don't have to to do all that. Um, I'm not familiar with those granules. Maybe um, you can send me kind of an email with a, a link to those granules, and I can take a look at them. But in general, all you want to do is make sure that material is absorbent. If it's absorbent, then that's then it's doing its job. Um, so that that would be all I would say on that. Um, okay. Yeah. And I'll, I'll add to this too, because like I said, there's so many people that have different size coops, types coops. You know, someone that has six birds definitely will ha can have a different management routine than someone who has 90 birds in one coop versus six in one coop based on the size of the coop and uh, time restraints. Like, um, it, it sounds like, you know, you enjoy your birds. You have plenty of time to go in there and scoop that every morning where with my 90 birds, that is not even a possibility. So, you know, our system may be set up for you. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of different rights. There's a lot of different wrongs. Um, so I ask this question too, because it's something I share in almost every class, and that is that bedding should be soft and absorbent for several reasons. And so what, what concerns me with the folks that are just using sand, and if you think about it, we're also, you know, people like, don't let your cats get into your kid's sandbox because of bacteria, but yet they're, they're, they have no problems putting sand in, in their coop and only having it as the bedding. Um, and then those issues where you want several inches of bedding, which should be soft and absorbent. Uh, so when they jump off the roost, they have some cushion landing, because we've talked back uh, with a lot of poultry veterinarian, veterinarians on the show with, you know, why does my chickens have leg problems and then a lot of times they trace it back to not enough bedding on the floor when they're jumping off the roost uh, there's been issues where if the last thing the hen is standing in is sand when they fly up to the roost and grab that roosting pole very tightly and then their legs twist on it surely doing that once or twice not be an issue but we all know if we go to the beach and put our hand in sand then there's going to be sand on our hand. And then if we grabbed a wooden dowel and really tight and, and moved our hand around on it, that sand is going to hurt, maybe have a, a, an abrasion on it and doing that every day then could lead to bumblefoot. Uh, and then of course the bacteria, you know, it's not absorbent and you got bacteria issues. So I'm not really comparing sweet PDZ because we use that here on the farm as well and have for years to, to sand, but there's a lot of people that use sand as the only a bedding, if you will, in the coop. So if you can just kind of address that, because I've been sharing with that, and I think maybe you, I, I, maybe you've gotten that from you before, Dr. Potensky, maybe Dr. Um, um, McRae, but I've always heard that bedding in the coop should be soft and absorbent. Um, can you can you elaborate on that a little bit and kind of a little ex explanation there with sand and cat litter and or, or you know sandboxes and kids and keep the cat out because of bacteria and and you know being absorbent why that's important also as for bedding and things like that yeah so if i understand your question you kind of got out there he came out for a second there um okay. so if i understand your question you're asking about why why sand is not recommended in general not necessarily focusing on sand because we we've beat that dead horse a, a lot of times on the show as well and it's in the factor chicken poop book but um she was ta our caller was talking about just the only bedding she has in her coop is the sweet PDZ. And for, for all practical purposes, if you're not familiar, it's about the consistency of sand. And so I'm sure she doesn't have like several inches of that on there. It's just probably a nice coating. We have it and we use it in our coop here. But my concern would be um, just using that small layer of sweet PDZ on the floor of her coop versus a bedding, which should be bedding my understanding i've always been taught bedding should be soft and absorbent so i guess mm -hmm. 
issue of could she or would she run into any problems just using that granular sweet PDZ uh, about the consistency of sand on this coop floor versus having an, a, a, I don't want to say an approved bedding, but a recommended bedding that should be soft and absorbent. Yeah. So, so to Andy's point, um, the, the, we don't, in the commercial poultry world, no one really uses sand. So we're, we're not as familiar with that and, and the potential effects or, or, or non-effects of it. It's obviously very absorbent. It's kind of designed for that. Um, but in general, things like rice holes, um, things like wood shavings, um, those seem to be um, more absorbent, softer. They, they don't produce any kind of um, – one of the things we get really concerned about, and, and, and you, it's not an issue in your situation because you have open air, it sounds like, um, is ammonia um, uh, formation. So if, if you don't have enough substrate in general um, and you've got enough birds in your coop, um, you can get uh, ammonia um, gases. It's not good for the birds, not good for the humans, can cause corneal ulcers in chickens, for example. Um, but in general, we, we want to use something um, that the birds are comfortable with, and, and we also want to make something that doesn't cause any lesions at all because they can get all kinds of bacterial infections um, from um, exposure to, you know, different things that, that might be um, um, Hello. Yeah. Oh, Andy, are you still there? I don't. I don't know if that answered your question or not. Oh, we're still not hearing you. Hello. I think the call, the show the radio show dropped. I hear you. Can oh. you hear me? <laughs> I can hear you. I can't hear Andy, but I, I'm not as familiar with sand. So, um, but I, I think if you talk to Andy and some of the folks that, that, that might be a little more familiar with sand, I think, I think the issue is like, is it, is it something that the um, birds are comfortable with? We don't particularly use it. How would you like a punch world. in the beak? How would you like a punch oh. in the beak? <laughs> and the mighty bird against prejudice. Anyway, I think, I think we'll, we'll have to end it there. So when okay. you hear that cry Thank in the you. sky, okay. you'll know it's Super Chicken. Actually, in reality, I am Super Chicken. When you find yourself in danger, when you're threatened by a stranger, when it looks like you will take a licking. There is someone waiting who will hurry up and rescue you. Just call for Super Chicken. This looks like a job for Super Chicken. You get the super sauce, I'll don my super suit. This has been Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by Tucker Milling, with your host, Andy Schneider. For more information, find us on the web at chickenwhisperer.com, on Facebook by typing in The Chicken Whisperer, on Twitter at Backyard Poultry, and on Instagram at The Real Chicken Whisperer. Thanks for listening. Yeah.